Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 330 and my conversation with the principal percussionist of the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, Becca Laredo. We'll get to her shortly. We are finally fully into the semester here at Mizzou, starting to get the swing of these classes, which I'm enjoying teaching, and getting to work with great students. We also finally just got back from our annual Missouri Music Educators Association Conference, which was, generally speaking, a good time. Mizzou was very well represented there with our wind ensemble, under the direction of Dr. Brian Sylvie, Director of Bands, and guest conducted by Dr. Amy Knops, Associate Director of Bands, and our university singers, under the direction of the Director of Choral Activities, Dr. Paul Crabb, both giving fantastic performances. We also had our Assistant Director of Choral Activities, Dr. Brandon Boyd, do a wonderful session on new choral works, where he was having the crowd sing through lots of selections. I helped cover the bass section. You're welcome. And many of our grad students gave presentations, including a very good joint presentation with band grad assistants, Allison Davis and Faith Hall, both PhD students, regarding underrepresented wind band repertoire. As usual with these conferences, it was also great to catch up with both fellow colleagues and some former students who are also fellow colleagues, and hope that it continues to be a good year for all. And now, let's transition to our conversation with Becca Laredo. I was interested in having Becca on because she was presenting at this most recent PASIC 2022 with a program called Performing to Your Potential, A Holistic Approach to Anxiety. I got to catch a good bit of her presentation at PASIC And it was very informative about the ways that we can use a variety of tools to manage performance anxiety, and by turn, anxiety in general. And as expected, quite a few people stuck around afterwards to ask her more specific questions about their own journeys with anxiousness, showing the sticking power of her presentation. We also chat here to learn quite a bit about Becca's upbringing She's been the principal percussionist with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra in Honolulu for a number of years and has been very active as a concert performer both there and all around the United States. She grew up in the Chicago area, so there'll be a lot of talk about Chicago in this interview. And she's also been able to find a unique path into the sound healing world through her percussion background, which you'll hear about in the first segment, as well as the challenges And there are some, it turns out, of living and working in Hawaii. Plus, we get to the usual close to our podcast and a lot more as well. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 24th, 2022, and it begins right now. So Becca, tell me what you're presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting. I am presenting a lecture clinic and the title of my lecture is called um, Performing to Your Potential. And what I'll be talking about is how to deal with performance anxiety and anxiety in general from 
a mind-body perspective. So how to deal with this, just using tools that we have. Everything that I'm going to suggest is completely free. Um, you don't need any fancy tools, no prescription drugs, anything like that. The idea is that our anxiety, our nervousness, is something that we can train, just like our musical skills. Um, so I'm going to be going over some tools to provide immediate relief for when you feel jitters before you perform. So specifically breathwork techniques. Um, there's a whole bunch of different patterns of, of breathing that can really help um, slow down our heart rate and improve focus. I'll be going over uh, tapping, which kind of combines the foundation of acupuncture with um, neuroplasticity. And then I'll be talking about some more long-term changes that we can make to strengthen the central nervous system so we just don't become as nervous as often in our lives. So that's the gist of it, performing to your potential. And the idea is that we don't get nervous or we, we get less nervous so that we can actually um, evoke or portray our true musical voice and actually put out the perspective that is unique to us. How did you come to this area? <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> so along my musical studies when I was in undergrad, starting when I was about 20 years old, I had always been interested in health and wellness. Um, I started doing yoga when I was about 20 years old, and I had a lot of performance anxiety myself. Like, I, I, it was crippling for me. It was like to the point where it was like debilitating. But I also just was anxious as a child, like before I was really performing. Um, and so I started doing yoga when I was about 20 because I didn't really know what else to do. It kind of became like, I became really interested in it. And um, it's kind of hilarious because at the time I was uh, like also a smoker and like was not very healthy, but I knew that I wanted to um, just improve this aspect of my life. I knew that my anxiety was what was keeping me from performing well. And it was keeping me from honestly just like living my life. Over the last 10 plus years, I've just kind of made a hobby out of learning more about health and wellness methods. Um, so it started with yoga. I have a yoga teacher certification. I have the 500 hour yoga teacher certification. I have certifications in breath work, meditation, nutrition, health coaching. And then when I moved to Hawaii, it got, it got kind of weird. Um, and I started studying acupuncture. I don't have any certifications in acupuncture, but I'm really interested in it. And then I entered a three-year energy healing school where it talks about very similar concepts as acupuncture and other types of like natural medicine, natural healing methods. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into it really was my own struggle with my own anxiety and just I don't know, staying relentless and trying to figure out how I could, how I could solve that for myself. I'm curious, before you start doing yoga, are you doing anything in terms of your uh, anxiety meds to, to help this situation out? I had never been on any like prescribed anxiety meds except for beta blockers. I had been taking beta blockers and I'm a fan of beta blockers. I know there's like a stigma or, or people feel uncomfortable, you know, talking about it, whatever. Maybe not so much anymore. But when I was in school, it was definitely like 
people weren't talking about it. People weren't as open about it. Um, I did get a, a prescription for uh, propranolol, and I started taking that. But I was taking a way higher dosage than what was uh, recommended to me on the DL. I mean, all I really knew was what my friends, the, the people who were willing to talk about it, all I knew was really what th they were sharing. Um, and I knew that wasn't cutting it for me, and I was, I was taking higher dosages. And it worked really well for me. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of it for me in terms of starting to, that was really the first time when I took beta blockers, okay, this is how this is supposed to feel. Like this is how it feels if I'm actually calm. So it really helped actually teach me, okay, this is the feeling. And then how do I work backwards from here and create this within myself? I found it to be really empowering to, to go off of beta blockers. So now I don't use them anymore. Um, but it's not because of any moral thing um, or, or, or anything like that. It's really just out of convenience. I don't want to refill a pres prescription. I don't want to become reliant on them. Um, the more reliant you are on them, the more you're going to need them. Your, your tolerance for them grows. Um, and it, then it's something that, like, it, it's really a, a Band-Aid that's not really taking care of the root issue. So I thought, maybe I can address this from the root issue and see what's, what's really going on with me. I don't know that I've that I've thought that people were, and I, I'm I'm not someone who's taken them, so I can't speak on this very directly. But I never felt like it was a um, it was a stigma with it, though I definitely take your word for it if it, if it was. I, I've always one of the things I've heard about the beta blocker portion was that people felt I think the edge for performing was taken off. And so it made sense in some ways if you were like a, a orchestra musician where the accuracy is is key, particularly with auditions, but maybe not outside of that. Does that does that ring up any bells here for totally? I, I think that like having a little bit of excitement, I mean, there's a fine line between anxiety and excitement, you know, sure. and like having a little bit of adrenaline can can really enhance our performance a lot. And and I mean, we can play faster when we're a little bit anxious. We can play things um, and we can really get ourselves in the moment a little bit more. But but yeah, I mean, for me, there there seems to be like a point of no return. It's like when I get into like the red alert zone, it's like uh, my hands are just shaking beyond control. And that's when it's like, if I'm not in control anymore, then it's not okay. I have experienced that before where it's like oh, having a little bit, like that can be nice and it, it, can, it can make our performance great. But I guess I was really yeah, focusing more on just what happens when I get into that red alert. And that was happening a lot for me. Was there a moment when you start to do the yoga and start to do some of these breathing and some of the other natural processes where you had a performance where you actually realized these can work for me? Yeah, definitely. I'm shocked at how effective just breath work is and just breathing in certain ways can really just like change everything. From performance to performance, yes, there have been a few instances where I'm like, wow, this is really all that I need. That's great. What I discovered was that it wasn't just one singular performance, but what would happen was I would be nervous before a show and then I would mess up or there'd be like a spiral of messing up, you know, have one mistake and then it's like you get in your head and then you start making more mistakes. And I feel like that spiral happens on a macro level also. So it's not just 
okay, this performance is gonna be okay. Now it's like, oh, well, I messed up those last performances, so am I gonna screw up again? And so then what I've discovered is that through these practices, I've been able to sort of like stop that spiral. Um, I don't go into the performance thinking that, oh no, like it's not a pattern anymore. Once I was able to start calming down during shows, then it wasn't an expectation going into it. So yeah, I guess I kind of label those as like short-term anxiety right before the show. And then long-term anxiety is like, what do I think about myself? And what type of like trust and faith in my own capabilities do I have? Because I was practicing and like, you know, obtaining the skills. I was spending a lot of time in the practice room, but as soon as I got to like the key moment, it was like, I don't trust myself. I don't trust that I'm able to do this. So it was kind of a long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> no, well, and it's, uh, but it's, it's important you state that because I hadn't completely uh, connected it to what happened, the after effects, basically everything that's happening that's not the performance, but the ways that it's, that's going to infect your life. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really pervasive in music school culture is like the fear of not making it and like constantly being on top of ourselves about like, got to practice more. And it can take a toll on you if you're really hard on yourself for a long period of time. At what point do you decide that it's not just that you want to study this or, or, you know, you're thinking of this more effectively, but you're actually thinking in a teaching perspective, in a, um, in something that actually could be another either source of income or just another activity that's part of your life. You mean with like the health and like yes. wellness stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, to I, I went into that not at all expecting that this was going to turn into something. Now I, I do, I teach sound healing to people in the wellness industry. I teach them how to play gongs and singing bowls. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been a really rewarding experience. I started that during the pandemic. But I started off doing yoga just to help myself. And I, I started yoga teacher training because I was like, I want to really learn how to do this. And you go to classes and like the instructor will explain things, but there's a group of like 20 other people in the room. And so um, like there was, I didn't want to um, get private yoga classes. And so I thought, why don't I just go through the teacher training? I didn't have any um, expectation. I did not have the desire to start teaching yoga. Um, I ended up teaching a bit when I moved to Hawaii for the first couple of years. But yeah, I had no intention of doing that at all. And then it just it just sort of grew. I became more and more interested in it really as a means to help myself and uh, to learn more about myself, to improve my own health and my own well-being. And yeah, it wasn't until the pandemic that I thought, wow, I really actually have learned quite a lot about this and and I might have something to offer. So yeah, and the sound healing thing happened um, while I was in Hawaii. I discovered that there are people doing this. It's sound healing for anyone who hasn't heard about this practice. Um, I hadn't until I, until I lived here. But basically, um, people really like to listen and feel the vibrations of gongs and, and singing bowls. And it's sort of like a somatic experience where just literally feeling the vibrations, um, but also it helps with meditation, um, with, with accessing like a deep level of meditation. Meditation is basically like, like the point of meditation is to be in the present moment. 
Um, and this is very analogous to performing music, honestly. It's like, how do we stay in the present moment without thinking about what I've done already or about the future, about what's to come, my to-do list or whatever it is? And so music and sound are really effective in kind of giving us an anchor. Well, I discovered that there's these people who literally play a gong for an hour and people will be lying on the floor on like yoga mats and just deep in meditation. Um, and I went to my first sound bath and I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, this guy doesn't know how to play a gong. <laughs> Where's the technique? <laughs> and so that's how I, I came up with the idea. Like maybe I actually have something to teach. I created a course where I teach people how I teach them like uh, stroke types, um, placement and technique on, on singing bowls and gongs. Um, but I also teach them about like moving gear and like how to do that effectively. I, I, I give them a contract where, um, where there's a cartage fee and they can like kind of work that in. So just stuff that like, you know, people who are like yoga instructors wouldn't, you know, wouldn't know. Um, and so I've been doing that for a year and I've coached about 25 people at this point in, in being sound healers. So that happened completely like, I mean, by chance, it didn't really, I didn't really like have any intention or any plans of, of creating a business or making that happen, but it just seemed to suit all of the interests and everything that I had already had going for me. Oh, that's really cool. I, <laughs> I just, that's amazing. <laughs> because of, yeah, it's hard for us to get out of the, <laughs> the percussion thing where, like, you know, totally. if they're like hitting a drum and you're just like, like you know, if you rebound doing? off, that's like getting a better sound, you know, <laughs> like, Totally. You need to tune that, you know, like, and yeah. Yeah. And I, I liked, it's, it's hard not to turn off our like classically trained brain sometimes. And I, I really try, but, but in that instance, I mean, that was a, a, a wake up moment for me. It was like an aha moment of just like, maybe I could, maybe I could do this if that guy's doing this. And that's the other thing is like what the wellness industry is like charging and, and how, oh my gosh, the way that, um, retailers are selling gongs and, uh, and bowls. There are some retailers who are really like taking advantage of the fact that people don't know the difference between 440 and 432 or don't really know the difference between a chow gong and a wind gong. And, and it's, and so that's where I was like, maybe I could, maybe I could help out. Yeah. Gong versus Tam Tam versus. Yeah. Versus and people are lost. I mean, and yeah. I didn't realize there was such a desire. I didn't realize this was a, a niche at all. Like, but there really are a lot of people who are aspiring sound healers in the world. <laughs> the, 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 I think the thing you just got to be careful of is someone pulls out a bass bow and, and you're like, hey. <laughs> you know what's funny though is something that's really popular are um, the Super Ball. Oh yeah, yeah. People, people go nuts over these. They call them flumies in the sound healing world, but I've got like it's it's insane. People love them. <laughs> Funny. Who would have thought? Every time this shows up, we're playing um in in Hawaii Symphony, we're playing Harry Potter, yeah. the fifth movie coming up, and we've got some Super Ball Tam Tam action happening. And I was like, Great, I've got I've got some gear for that. <laughs> it's like when that shows up in the orchestra, we're just like, ugh, like I don't want to do this, but people love it. The novelty stuff. It's like, uh, yeah. It's oh, fun. it's a great. It's great. I, I always think of, did you ever play um, George Crumb's idol for the misbegotten? Mm, I've never played. That? No, it's a, it's 
for flute and three percussionists. And there's a section in the in the middle that has where it's like Super Bowl with large bass drum. And so it's like this low roar that has and it's so much fun to like just get that awesome. just going the whole time. Like a thunder, yeah. Yeah. I love that. In terms of this specific type of presentation, what sort of things do you do you find things that people push back on for lack of knowledge, basically? Hmm. I I haven't gotten much pushback. Um I think the thing that just shows up the most is lack of awareness or, or knowledge. Um, one of the things that I just talk about a lot is um, the, the things that affect your sound. With idiophones, it takes a lot to get them warmed up. And so what I see a lot with kind of like newer people, you're talking about sound healing, yeah? With people that are doing yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people will just whack at it. I mean, it's it's like there's just not a lot of intentionality behind it because, and it's not because um, you know it's it's not due to anything bad. It's just they don't know, and no one's really taught them. Um, there are people in the industry who are teaching sound healing who teach in like an afternoon and do like a, a two hour session with like a big group of people. And that's a certification. And so there are people that are walking around saying, oh, I'm, I'm a certified sound healer and, and just really haven't had a lot of time or experience with the actual instruments. So something like a big, a big thing, one of the first things that I taught, um, I do all my marketing on social media. And um, one of the first things that really drew people to me was um, just the idea that you have to, I call it activate the bowl first. You have to get it going. And then once you get it going, you can slow down. And that was like revolutionary for some people because it's like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like once it's already vibrating, I don't need to like go at full force. I don't know if you have much experience playing singing bowls, but like when you play them, they can they skip a lot, and it can be actually difficult to to have them, um, especially the metal ones, uh, Tibetan bowls. It, they skip, and if they're vibrating too much, it's it's hard to maintain an even sound. So um, something that a lot of people have noticed, but just didn't really know how to fix it. So I came in just providing some solutions, and I haven't had much pushback, but. I'm open to it. I'm ready for it. Ready to- <laughs> if it's if it's coming towards me, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Is the acupuncture that you the part that you mentioned is that an upcoming like plan to to get more mm. out of that? It's not really a plan for me to. When the pandemic hit, I was really um, pessimistic about the future of classical music, and I thought about going to acupuncture school. Mm. But I don't think I, I don't really have a desire to be a practicing acupuncturist. However, I do find the concepts behind acupuncture to be extremely interesting. And um, I see an acupuncturist and that has been very helpful with my own health. So I'm interested in it. I like to learn. I like to study um, and just read about, about these things. Um, but I don't think I'll be a practitioner. Um, but it's the concepts that um, are in the concepts of traditional Chinese medicine align very well with other types of energy work. So um, things like the chakra system or Ayurvedic uh, medicine, which is like uh, stems from uh, Indian traditions. There's a lot of similarities between like many different cultures and their 
beliefs with that. So I'm interested in it, but it's probably not a career path for me. I want to give people short-term solutions. So when you're feeling nervous, when the flip has already switched, what do you do? Because for me, it was like, as soon as I'm really nervous um, and I'm feeling jittery and shaky, there's just no way that I'm going to perform the way that I want to perform. A little bit was okay, but once I flipped that switch, it was, it was, I was like done. And so I want to give people some tips to get out of that so that we can have a good performance. On the other side is um, long-term anxiety. So instead of getting yourself into this spiral of like, this is how I define myself. I have performance anxiety. I'm not good at this or kind of expecting ourselves to mess up. How do we get ourselves out of the spiral and strengthen our nervous system so that we just don't get as nervous as often and fewer things evoke fear. So expanding our comfort zone so that we can perform with ease, but also just do more difficult things with ease. Just the way you're, you're laying this out, it's kind of fascinating in that, like if you bring up something like long-term, hopefully no one's expecting you to just fix it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we can, we can make ourselves feel better in the moment, but that doesn't change the fact that I got nervous to begin with. Right. And so, so it, kind of approaching it from both sides, I think is necessary. It's like, I can calm myself down if I do get anxious, but how do I make myself a less anxious person in general? And that does take time and practice and really incorporate, incorporating it into our lifestyle. So like one of the things that I'm going to talk about with that is literally our sleep, uh, sleep wake cycle, having a routine this might be difficult for a lot of musicians, but having a routine, going to bed at the same time every night, waking up in the morning at the same time every morning, um, this routine is really good for creating a sense of safety within the body. Over weeks, months, years of training your body, this is time for me to be uh, sleepy and relaxed, and this is time for me to be alert and awake. It really does help the body um, find more safety and comfort just no matter like what you're doing basically. And that's not something that you can change overnight. It's not a, I guess we can't flip a switch and make ourselves suddenly stronger to the point where we don't get nervous anymore. We can flip the switch. I guess I'm using that term a lot. We can flip a switch to go from being nervous to not nervous in the moment, but it's not going to be an instantaneous thing to suddenly not get nervous anymore when something right. difficult shows up in our lives. Yeah. But I like this idea of, I guess, expanding the range where you are, your comfortable area mm. beyond whatever's kind of like that box. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like every... Everything that we do, every time we improve our skills, I mean, we have to step outside of our comfort zone in order for us to get good at anything, you know? Yeah. I didn't start out knowing how to play even doubles on a snare drum, but if, if I'm um, approaching that with negativity, it's going to be a lot more difficult for me to learn how to do it. Whenever we are learning new skills, we're taking ourselves out of our comfort zone. Anytime we want to get good at something, um, we have to get outside of our comfort zones. We have to learn new skills. And when we're learning new things and we're stepping outside of our comfort zones, that's the time when it's 
it's easy for fear to set in. And when fear sets in, then it's, um, it can diminish our ability of doing things well. Bringing more safety and security to ourselves so that we can step out of our comfort zones more easily. Actually expand our comfort zones. So doing something that I'm not used to doing or doing something that's new to me or um, doing something that's challenging doesn't evoke as much fear. And so no matter what it is, whether you're performing at Carnegie Hall, or if you're giving a lecture at PASIC in front of people for the first time, or if you are, whatever it is, if you're asking someone on a date, how do you actually cultivate a feeling of safety within yourself so that it doesn't feel as hard? When you were talking about um, the, you know, techniques, t- fixing techniques regarding playing gongs i was like you know what you could and you could go and if you want to play paradiddles better that'd be extra you know like <laughs> side business on the i'll make your paradiddles. yeah but just consider it is all i'm saying just think totally. about it yeah. yeah well there's a big market for drum circles too i i i'm not i'm not going there but <laughs> that's a whole thing <laughs> awesome so tell me what your percussion activities and responsibilities are at this point At this point, I play principal percussion in the Hawaii Symphony. So um, I play the principal parts. I assign music. I make setup diagrams. I communicate with the setup crew, uh, with the symphony. That's, That's the majority of it. That's the most of it delegating the section, speaking up when the conductor talks to the, <laughs> to the section, really just principal percussion duties, um, renting instruments and, and locating instruments. And that is actually quite difficult to do here in Hawaii because everything has to be shipped here and that's quite expensive. We pick and choose. We're not able to, to, to rent all the time. Yeah, the instrument situation here is kind of uh, unique. Um, we do have some additional challenges just being on an island that, that other orchestras might not um, come across. Such and just, we don't have a very large pool of people um, as substitutes. The orchestra is financially okay at the moment, but it's, it's, they don't pay travel all the time for substitutes to come in. So um, that's a whole thing. People that are willing to come. I think a lot of people are willing to come because it's Hawaii and it's kind of a little work vacation. People can break even, um, but it's not a money-making endeavor to come out here and sub with us for the most part. <laughs> gotcha. So tell me about your audition process to get the job. Was it a multi-day? Was it a, did it, was it all blind? How did, how did that, how was that set up? I first was offered a one-year position with the orchestra um, as associate principal in 2017. So I came out here and was, was playing for about a year. And then they decided at the beginning of the next season to hold an audition. Um, and they only announced it less than two months prior with a pretty large list. It, it wasn't an absurd list, but it was, it, it was sizable. The audition for that was over the course of, I want to say three days, they were auditioning all of the percussion spots at once. So principal, pr- uh, principal percussion, principal timpani, and uh, section percussion associate timpani. So it was over the course of, th- I think, three or four days for all of those positions. And so I played, I definitely played three days. I played three rounds. And everything was blind. 
we had Rainer Carroll come out uh, to join the committee, and then he actually played with us the following week, which was very cool. First round, second round, final round, everything was screened, and, and I actually- is that, is, that on, is that on separate days each day? Separate days, too. Yeah, separate days. Uh, how big was the semifinal round? How many people? Do you remember? Um, I think there were 11 people okay. in, the, in the semis, um, and then there were two of us in the finals. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's um, quite a cut down number from semi yeah. to final. I, there weren't there weren't a huge pool of people that came to the audition because it did take place in Hawaii and um, so I want to say there were like under like thirty five people there total so yeah big cut from the semis to uh, to the finals so that happened in twenty eighteen and so I've been playing principal ever since then when you finish the end of your final round did you go feel good. This was good. This was a good, this was a good set for me. It was, um, it was a good set for me. I do remember thinking afterwards, like if I, if I don't win, like I'm really happy with how I played and I really respect the person who, who wins, you know, like I, I felt that was, that was one where I really felt like I did play to my potential. I played the way that I, I intended to play. Um, I can't say the same about my semi round. I was not happy about my semi round and I was surprised that I made the finals. Um, I, yeah, I missed some notes. I just, I didn't feel super confident, but the, the final I felt very zeroed in. I was definitely in that like flow state um, where it just, it was, it was gelling, it was jiving. So yeah. How did you find out that you got it? Um, they just had us all in a room backstage and um, our personnel manager was the proctor. And it is kind of interesting auditioning for an orchestra that you have been playing with already because they know you. And, and so when he announced it, it that was, I was so relieved um, because I would have been sad because I was already set to, excuse me, it was, I was technically on my second one year. Um, the audition happened in October of 2018. Um, something like that. And so I was actually, I'm, I was planning on staying there for the whole year. And so I was like, if I don't win a position, then I'm going to be heartbroken. Um, and I'm going to stay here this whole year and like freak out. I don't know what I'm doing next and whatever. So, um, but actually straight after that audition finished up, they just went straight into um, the section percussion and associate timpani. So I didn't meet the committee afterwards. I didn't like get to say hi to anybody. Um, I just ended up leaving and celebrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. You, you didn't get to, you, you didn't all get to get, get a beer is basically what you Yeah, said. I mean, I didn't get the, the, the chance of like saying hi to the committee and, and having like my colleagues that I'd been working with for the past year get to have a moment with like, hey, it was me. Um, <laughs> that would have been, been cool. It would have been nice, but I didn't get to have that. But um, but that night, all of us, it ended up being a, a few, the two of us who already had one year's one, two of the spots, and then there was a new person, our timpanist Brad Davis, uh, won the timpani spot. And so, yeah, it's, it's been great. Our section has been really fun to play in. Um, everyone's pretty young, and uh, so it's been fun. It's been, everyone sounds great, so it's, it's been a good time. Prior to that point... How many 
orchestra auditions had you taken? I had taken professional, like full-time orchestra auditions. I'd probably taken like 15 or 16, something like that. But I had taken a ton of auditions in the few years prior, including like New World and summer festivals. Actually, I remember the year prior, I was... I was at DePaul doing an artist diploma and my final year at DePaul, I took 19 auditions and it was just like absurd. I mean, so so many of them were like summer festivals where it's like, you know, back to back and you're doing like three auditions in one weekend or something like that. But, um, it was just like absurd. It was a lot. Um, so how did you afford afford to do that? (laughs) Well, I mean, when I was in, in Chicago, it was like, I, it wasn't a big deal because summer festivals, they travel, um, or else I would drive. I mean, I took a lot of regional orchestra auditions also. Um, Chicago is great for that. You're centrally located. So I took, um, I actually won an audition of around the same time as Hawaii for the Battle Creek Symphony in, in Michigan. Mm. Um, things like that. It, it was, it wasn't, not all of them were, you know, big full-time groups. But in terms of like overall, um, I've, I've probably taken about 40 auditions in my life since grad school. Um, but, you know, of varying degrees of, of stakes, you know, like not everything was super high stakes. You know, take, take what you can get. Take every opportunity you can get, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Do you like doing that kind of prep? Mm. I mean... <sighs> Yes. I mean, I I understand you have to do that for like these kinds of positions, but liking it is a different question. (laughs) I, I mean, I did like it. Um, I think looking back, maybe I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. You know, it's like, Oh, I really, we really have to put ourselves through a lot in order to do that. But there's something that I like about how, organized you have to be in order to get it all done and just like finding as much efficiency as possible um in in making it happen it made me really feel like oh I have this like purpose um and during my I mean during that time during my grad school and post-grad I was just really like had this tunnel vision and um I liked the sense of purpose it it gave me, I guess, I don't have the same sense of fear motivating me (laughs) as I did then, but, um, yes and no. I mean, now I don't think I would be as eager to jump into it. Um, there are fewer opportunities that excite me to the level where like, okay, I'm going to go for it because it really does. It, it, it takes up your life. It really does consume you. So yes, but like, not really. (laughs) it doesn't really answer your question but I liked it 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 gets dark you know it does get dark and I think a lot of people that are in that feel the darkness of that (laughs) like um and I don't like that part of it definitely not I feel like there's there's a little bit of that that relates to what you've been talking about with the uh, the both the mental health and the I feel like it would be easy to be frustrated if you're putting in this work and either you're not seeing the the result that you're trying to get to, or you just get frustrated because y- you can't perfect it or get, get it as close as you want. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the most challenging part about being a musician in general, I mean, not even just orchestral, 
um, is the amount of, of work that we put in and the, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into it, and just the sheer number of hours that, that need to go into mastering a piece of music. And um, the return or the reward is so little. I mean, honestly, the amount of time that we spend on stage versus the amount of time that we spend in the practice room is, it's absurd. Yeah. And, um, and the amount of glory that we get while we're on stage. I mean, if you, if you compare us to like athletes, you know, they get paid really well. There's people cheering and screaming and, and having a good time. It's like, we don't, we don't get that same type of reward um, back at us. So I think that's really challenging, especially if you go through years and years of doing that. I think people really do kind of spiral into this dark mental state. And so I like to um, now at this point in my life uh, do what I call diversify my fulfillment. So I'm, I'm not getting fulfillment just from my job um, or from my success as a musician, but also from other things in my life. And I do think that there are some teachers, music schools, the, the, um, the paradigm is that, oh, if you, if you have hobbies outside of music, then you're not serious about it. And so we kind of commit our lives to it. And then there's not much re reward right away. And it can be really discouraging. So yeah, I think it's really easy. I mean, I know a, tons of people who have not super great mental health in this industry. Tell me a little bit more about the some more of the logistics of the symphony, how often they perform kind of your expected, you, you mentioned a little bit about that you have to, you're in charge of the kind of part assignments and planning and, and stuff, but like, what's the, how much of the, the typical week does the orchestra take up of your time? It ends up being a total of about 24 weeks a season. So you know, I have plenty of weeks off and I have a lot of time to start a business, um, to sub other with other orchestras, which I do pretty regularly. Between the, the orchestra, the opera and the ballet, we do Nutcracker every year. Um, it's about 24 weeks. And um, I don't know, it's sort of like a typical schedule for orchestra. We have, I don't know, maybe it's like 20 hours when we're on, we have eight services, each of which is um, two and a half or three hours long. So whatever math that is, um, eight services at three hours each, 24 is around 20 hours, um, 22 hours a week when we're on. Yeah. Sometimes we'll have doubles this week coming up. We don't have any doubles. We just have night evening rehearsals and evening shows and that's it. But sometimes it'll be a, you know, 10 AM to 1230 PM rehearsal and then a 7 PM to 930 rehearsal. And that's kind of our timing. I know other orchestras have different, um, rehearsal times, but yeah, we do usually 10 to 1230 AM and then seven to 930 PM are our main, uh, rehearsing times. And then sometimes it shifts, but um, yeah, that's generally what it's like. And then 24 weeks out of the year, not all of those weeks require percussion. Or, you know, coming up, we have uh, the percussion. It requires our full section of three, but we just play on the overture, and that's it. So I guess that's one of our, one of our perks. The perks, uh, percussion perks, perk perks. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about the logistics of instruments, particularly when they're not stuff you have. 
Like yeah. what, what is it, what does it take to get something? Like if you're, if you get a score for, for peace and you're like, uh, <laughs> what yeah. do you want for this? <laughs> yeah. So luckily, like, I mean, we're not a huge orchestra and so we're not playing huge works most of the time. Sure. Um, so it, I, we haven't come into a situation where we need like multiple five octave marimbas or like crazy stuff like that. But coming up, we're playing this Mason Bates piece, um, which does require uh, uh, some unusual instruments. So the funny thing is that like, there's literally only like three five octave marimbas on this island. So like, it's, I mean, it's a thing. Like we, yeah. in order to get them like, so we have a relationship with one of uh, a teacher, a teacher who is really a skilled grant writer and has won all of these grants or been awarded all of these grants where he's been able to buy some really beautiful instruments. And um, he's been so gracious with us in lending us and loaning us instruments. So we borrow a lot of instruments from this school. And that's usually the first place we go is we borrow instruments from there. Um, but then we've also got Trey Wyatt, who plays in the San Francisco Symphony. He used to have my position. He used to play principal percussion in the Hawaii Symphony. So he's kind of aware. And it's as far as things go, it's not as he's not terribly far. California is probably as close as, you know, anywhere could and be. New York. I mean, it's yeah, it's like it's. I had a my um, one of my brothers lived in Washington State. Their vacation was they would fly to Hawaii and he'd be like, well, it's the same distance. It's the same flight length as flying to New York. It's just the other direction. It's <laughs> like, crazy? oh, OK, that makes sense. It's great. Like, I didn't realize just how far it was until I actually like came out here for the first time. But it's about five or six hour flight um, west from, yes. from California. So it's we're really out in the middle of nowhere. Like we're in the middle of the ocean. So yeah, sometimes we rent instruments from Trey, um, from California Percussion or, or whatever the name of his company is. But um, we rent from him, we borrow from some local people, and then, um, and then we make substitutions if we need to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to be as, you know, stick to as close as we can. For masterwork stuff, absolutely, we're renting stuff. But, you know, if it's a pops thing or if we're playing a movie, then like, we'll, we'll have a little bit of, um, wiggle room with that. So making substitutions where needed, but, but yeah, I mean, it takes a long time. And so recently we did Madam Butterfly and we had to rent all those gongs, um, uh, for that. And it, you know, it just requires a lot of planning. It's going to take, you know, two weeks for them to come out. So we need to make sure that we're renting them months in advance and, um, they're sent out with plenty of time, uh, so I do a fair amount of work behind the scenes with like unpacking the box. That's like, you know, it's huge, like 50 pound box. that's like wrapped in saran wrap. And, um, and so I, I spend a, a fair amount of like extra time just unpacking and, and dealing with that and then, and then packing it up again. Um, that was a scene that for, for Madam Butterfly, those gongs, um, because it, it was really, I don't remember how, I think it was 18 gongs or something like that. And, um, so yeah, that took some, some work, but luckily also our set crew guys are, um, very resourceful and they build stuff for us all the time. Um, they built a rack for us to have those gongs on. And then we have, 
you know, figured out some industrious ways to, to make things happen. <laughs> the um, Mason Bates piece that we have coming up, we need car parts, like metal car parts. And um, it specifies in it like muffler and like, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know if, if it makes a difference. Does a muffler sound different than, I mean, I don't know, but uh, we talked to our set crew guys and he said, we'll, we'll go to the junkyard and see what we can find. So um, luckily they're very helpful and, <laughs> and good sports about it. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> so I had, um, do you know Matt McClung? Yes. Yeah. So I listened he, to his, um, his session with you. Yeah. yeah. So, cause one of the things I think he mentioned, cause this relates to you, you, you know, kind of saying, talking about how it's like financially it's in a good place now, but one of the things he really, he said, and I hadn't kind of put this together. It's just that there's, it's not as if you, it's easy for you all there to let's say expand your audience because you're on an island, <laughs> like, right? I mean, it's it's a little different than what happens in the states. In the yeah, 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 it's different because I mean, honestly, the actual population of Honolulu is like is I don't know, it's like a million. It's not a huge city, but there's so many people coming in and out all the time for tourism. So yeah. during COVID, obviously, it was it was challenging. Um, one thing I will say, we have a new executive director and he started literally March 15th of 2020. Oh, good time. He moved to Hawaii and started right at the beginning of the pandemic. He's yeah. done an incredible job. His name's Dave Moss. Um, and he's also a Chicago native like myself and, and Matt too, actually. Um, I went to a Hot Springs Music Festival where Matt taught uh, for one summer. So I know Matt. One thing I will say is that we, we can perform outside year-round. And so that's something that the orchestra has started to do in the last couple of years since the pandemic, since performances have been happening more. Um, we have many different locations where we can perform. Whereas when I first started, the first couple of years that I was in the orchestra, we always played at the same hall. Um, we've got an outdoor space that's really nice. We have another space that's in a different part of town that's a smaller venue. Um, and I'm really into, the, into us like moving around and it, it does draw different audiences when we're in different locations around the city. So um, mad props to our executive director, Dave, for like really figuring stuff out because we've actually, since I've been here, increased weeks. Um, our orchestra has kind of famously been financially unstable. Um, yeah, I mean, as you might imagine, not a lot of people come to Hawaii to like listen to symphonic music. Mm -hmm. um, but we, there are a, there is a core audience. We do have like a subscribers and and people that that come regularly. Um, but yeah, building the community and building that has been. I mean, they're they're really doing it right now. They really are. Um, but it it's been a challenge for sure. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that the orchestra does is um, we have a big Japanese audience. Um, and a lot, a lot of Japanese tourists who, who visit here. So that's been another thing that we've been kind of tapping into. We recently, last year, we played a bunch of Peter and the Wolf um, for just like children's shows. Um, and they decided to, to do the narration in English, in native Hawaiian, in Japanese. We did one in Tahitian. Um, so that was really cool. Um, because, you know, why not? There's this is a very multicultural place, multilingual place. So 
that was cool. I didn't know what was going on, but um, it was really fun to play, it, especially in Hawaiian. Because then, like, even the little kids, like, they can, they get the jokes, and, and it was nice. That, that's really cool. That's, that's, that's super cool. Have you seen, are you familiar with the movie um, Drive My Car that came out a couple years ago? I'm not, no. Okay. There's Drive a, so. Drive My Car. Yes, it's a it's a really fascinating movie. Um, but one of the things that that's that's happening because it sounds a little bit related to this is they're performing a checkoff play, and but they're they've got multiple levels of um, sub super titles going on at the same time. So it's like it's it's in a, it's in Japanese, but there's like a Chinese version. There's a sign language version. There's like and it's so so it's I was like relating it to that. Even though you were talking about, I would assume different narrators in different languages, but yeah. it was like a kind of a way of doing it multiculturally um, it, at simultaneously, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's such a great idea. I mean, we do have some like, I think, you know, we should just tap into our unique flavor. You know, it's like, there's no other orchestra that's going to be able to perform Peter and the Wolf in Tahitian, you know, or, or native Hawaiian without, you know, <laughs> like who would attend that? But here it, it drew in a, a bigger audience. So that was cool. I like it. I'm all about that. I really think that like orchestras need to find something to differentiate themselves. So it's, it's not so homogenous, you know, like let's, let's mix it up. Let's like do some different stuff. And be specific to the area you're in too. Definitely. Yeah. I remember there's one concert that we had that like just stands out where we did not have a very good audience at all. And we were playing Sibelius one. And I was like, why are we playing Sibelius? You know, like f what is the connection from and Sibelius one too? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know about this. I feel like we should be playing something different, but yeah. yeah. Finland and Hawaii. I don't really, it's, I feel like you can't really get farther apart on the That's globe. <laughs> oh man. Particularly like a, a 90 year old composer who like tried to drink himself to death for like decades and couldn't do it. Like, I don't see how we're bridging that gap, you know, <laughs> finding common ground. <laughs> Becca, let's back up where you said you grew up in Chicago. Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Did you have any family members in the arts? No, actually, um, I was the black sheep in my family. No, um, no artists, no musicians, very much um, normal, conventional. <laughs> Both my parents were doctors growing up. My mom stopped practicing when she became a mom of three. I'm the youngest of three doctor parents. Both of my brothers ended up doing like very normal, conventional things. And I just really, my brother played clarinet in, in high school. And I remember thinking that's cool. And I kind of wanted to be like him. Um, and so I started playing piano um, and I just really took to it. I just really liked it. So that's nothing. Um, I didn't grow up with like, you know, people playing music really in the house, but I just was drawn to it. Uh, how long did you do piano? I played piano. I started when I was about six and then I kept playing um, until I was about 14. Um, I started percussion when I was, I don't know, how old are you in sixth, fifth, fifth grade? Like 11, grade. 10, 11, 12 in that. Yeah. I think it was like maybe 11. Mm -hmm. um, I started playing percussion at 11 and, um, 
And I still played piano for a few years into that, but then I decided I like, I like percussion and I wanna focus on that. So I don't really play piano anymore. Sometimes I have a keyboard and sometimes I'll, I'll noodle on it, but I'm not like, I'm not super skilled anymore. I used to be um, pretty skilled and I actually um, competed in some um, concerto competitions at Interlochen Arts yeah. Camp, I went there. And yeah, but after I got really into percussion, I kind of just stopped, stopped playing piano after a while. What was the, what concertos were you playing? I remember playing the Haydn uh, piano concerto. Oh. That's the one that sticks out. I, there was another one, but I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I mean, that's, that's definitely like concerto level is definitely pretty good for a young teenager in terms mm. of, I mean, it's clearly focus, a strong focus of what you were doing. Yeah. I, I really liked music. I just felt drawn to it. I, um, I was kind of like a shy and quiet kid and, um, I don't know. I just kind of kept my, kept to myself. And so when I discovered actually the piano was like my neighbors had a piano and they had kids my age. And so we would hang out and then I just felt really drawn to their piano. And so I would sit at it and plunk out some melodies. And I remember kind of like figuring out like, you know, twinkle, twinkle. And, and I was just, I, I wanted to do more of it. So I found myself going over to their house all the time and not hanging out with my friends who were, you know, the kids my age. And eventually I kind of convinced my parents, like, I really want to do this. Can I play piano? And I took private lessons right out the gate, um, just started right away. I had a great teacher. Yeah, I just, I was, I was pretty serious about it from the, from the beginning. Yeah. But I started kind of late to be like a great pianist. Like I was, I was six, which, you know, as I remember at the piano recitals that I was, you know, in from my teacher, first of all, I was the only white student that she had. She was Japanese and just had a completely full Asian studio. And so I was like, you know, the old dumb white girl who like was playing <laughs> way more beginner stuff. You know, there were like four-year-olds playing stuff that was like way beyond what I was doing at the recitals that, that she would that she would have. So I felt a little like, I still was into it, but I did feel a little bit like, okay, well, I'm not going to be like, this isn't, I'm not a master at this, but I do like it. And uh, I'm going to keep, keep working at it. Yeah. When you start playing percussion, what's your entry instrument? I started off with keyboard instruments, definitely like that stereotype with girls on the mallet instruments, but I already knew how to read notes. Um, so the first time I came across a xylophone, I, I started going to interlock in arts camp when I was quite young. I was, um, eight years old. Um, I think that's the youngest you can be to go to like sleepaway camp there. And so I went there and just doing piano. I did a, some arts classes too. I remember taking like ceramics and things like that, but I took a class that was called instrument exploration. And each week, I remember it was four weeks of sleepaway camp. And, and each week, there, the first week was like strings, and then there was brass, and then woodwinds, and then there was harp and percussion. And I liked harp, actually. I really, I liked it because it's just a, a piano flipped up, basically. Um, but then I saw a, a xylophone, and I just thought, this is 
way cooler than piano. Like, why am I, I get to like hit it with these thingies and it's set up the same way. So it, I really felt like it was, um, it translated pretty easily. Um, and so I started playing there in the, in the band. So I guess I technically started playing percussion earlier, but it wasn't until I was 11 that I, I joined the band in middle school. And, you know, I could already read the notes that, that all, the, all the kids who were starting out in percussion who wanted to be drummers, you know, they couldn't read. I played timpani too, because I could read bass clef. So it was really out of necessity for the, <laughs> for the school rather than like what I was drawn to. But I was drawn to keyboard instruments and I definitely fulfilled that stereotype of like kind of um, staying more as like the mallet girl for years. Um, I became really skilled. I started learning four mallet marimba as like a freshman in high school and just did not practice snare drum. Um, or learn how to do that. And I was, I was kind of okay with that. And then when I got to college, it, it changed, but. Was there also a marching component to your. You know, it's funny because my, I went to a great high school. My, my high school is like kind of famous for being this like overachiever high school. And it's huge. There's five towns that feed into it. What's um, New Cheer High School. And the Chicago and uh, Chicago land area, it's kind of like known. Um, it's a huge school. There's a, a thousand people in each graduating class. Mm. And we had a great music program, four bands, four orchestras, four jazz bands, no marching band, no marching band. There was an optional pep band mm -hmm. that I didn't do because I was in, I played in two orchestras in one band. Um, and I was like, ma I was like maxing out all my hours with music. So our music program was actually pretty intense. Um, so when I was uh, a freshman or going into sophomore year, they held auditions to place you in what band you were going to be in. Um, but there's four, so it's generally like a, a freshman band, a sophomore band. I tested into or I auditioned into the senior band as a sophomore. So that was great because I got to play with the older kids and... I started going to youth orchestra my junior year of high school, but yeah, no marching band at all. And it's funny because later on, I started teaching the front ensemble for, um, for some other groups. And I was like, I don't have any experience with this at all, but <laughs> I can teach you guys how to play scales. So let's yeah. do that. <laughs> That's a pretty special program to be that big of a place to not have a marching band. Did it have, did this place have like high school sports or no? Oh yeah. Sports were huge, Okay, but there was just like a band. It was just like a band that played. It wasn't like a marching band. It was just a band that was like on the side playing. Like playing the fight tunes. Song or like that. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know why. I don't know why we didn't have that. I mean, it seems kind of like a big hole in the, in the education um, now looking back, but it's just never nutrient just didn't have a, have a marching band. Who knows? Maybe they do now, but when I was there, they did not. While you were in high school, were you doing anything else to fill out your time, you know, sports, student government, any, any other side things that were going on during that time? Yeah. When I was early on in high school, freshman, sophomore, and a little bit of junior year, <laughs> this is funny, I rode on the crew team. We had a oh, crew team, and so I, I, I was a port, um, so my oar was going out on the right side. Was on the varsity team my sophomore year, but 
it was just so funny because I was learning formal at marimba, like, you know, and I was yeah. getting calluses on my hands from that. And then I was getting all these weird calluses on my hands from like rowing. And so I was like, I can't do both of these things. Um, during high school, we had, a, we had a chamber orchestra that played early music, like Haydn and, and smaller, smaller orchestra music. And that met before school. It met at like 7.15. So I'd go there before school and then I'd have crew practice afterwards for like hours we'd run we'd we'd row on the rowing machine and yeah around junior I think it was in the middle of junior year I decided I can't I can't do all of this and I devoted more time to music mm. so yeah I was I was pretty busy yeah <laughs> I mean the thing that I know I don't know a ton about crew but I know that that's you will you will be in as fit physical shape as you would do literally anything else. Yeah. Right? It's, it's pretty, intense. it's like you, you burn a ton of calories. Yeah. Absolutely. Like if, have you ever used one of those rowing machines? Mm-hmm. It's called an ergometer. And we, we, it tells you like every time you, you have a stroke in your yeah. oar, it tells you if you were to do this for, um, for, 2000 kilometers, what your time would be. And so we tried to have our time be as fast as possible. Um, we had some great coaches, actually one of our coaches was on like an Olympic team in like the eighties or something like that. And, um, yeah, people were really hardcore about it. My high school was just really hardcore. Like this, the, there are people that like really have gone on to be professional athletes. There's a ton of people who I went to high school with who play professionally in orchestras. Mm. Um, and just other like kind of vaguely famous people that just come from, it's just a very overachiever school. So there, there wasn't really any like half-assing anything. Um, I remember distinctly in crew practice, like some of the girls vomiting, like, because they were just like pushing themselves so much. And it's like, you know, maybe, maybe let's not do that in high school. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe let's chill out. Um, but that was the culture I grew up in for sure. In what you were doing, how how many members were were in the the was skull? Is that the name of the the boat? Skull sculling is when it's one person okay. and they have two oars. Okay. Um, I don't. I'm trying to think. I think it's just. I don't remember what the the name of the the boat does have a, a special name, but it's okay. escaping my mind. Um, it's eight eight people in a boat, okay. and then a coxswain who's who's yelling at us. Right. Um, and then they do also do four people to a boat and then they do sculling um, competitively too, where it's one person, but we weren't doing that in high school. That's usually like professional. You have to be like insane to do that. It's really hard to be like a, a sculling rower. Um, yeah. It, I don't know why I started even doing this. It's like not a normal sport for someone to join, but I don't know. I guess I just like being unconventional. Yeah. Well, I really liked being in crew and I, I really liked being on a sport. Um, it, I think it's really good. I think it's good for everyone to do just like the teamwork and like camaraderie that comes from that. Like we would just be so exhausted together. And as a team, I remember we'd go to like, um, to a restaurant and like, you know, it just like totally eat, eat so much. Cause we just like burn so many calories <laughs> and like we're teenagers too, you know, it's just like such a different game. Yeah. Yeah. I miss those days. Yeah, no, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like you hand the menu back and go excellent. And then <laughs> I will take 
all of this. <laughs> there was this place that we went to that was like a buffet. And I yeah. remember like we would go there after we had practice because it was just like go up as many times as you need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the good old days. That, that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's really, really cool. Um, well, I think I was thinking about, you know, with it's interesting because there are sports where and I think because this is like a northeast. I grew up like I grew up in New York. And so like there's there definitely are like crew is one of those where because of the geography, it's really it's it's an active sport because there's a lot of waterways. There's a lot of lakes. There's a lot of like there's a lot of places. And I would assume that Chicago with area with Great Lakes and with all that stuff probably another like reason that that would be popular up there. I don't know if it was really popular. Actually, the team had just started maybe a couple years before I joined. Um, but yeah, we rode on the Chicago river and it was pretty disgusting. If I'm being honest, um, it, we were the, the boathouse where we practiced at was right by some like sewage thing. So not ideal, but um, but yeah, we did, Northwestern has a team. I do think it's kind of becoming more popular in the Midwest because we do have large bo- bodies of water. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting sport, but yeah, much more popular on the East Coast for sure. So where do you go for undergrad? I went to Northwestern for oh. my undergrad. I kind of stayed in the, stayed in the area. And I had a, an interesting undergrad experience actually because... My first two years, Michael Burrett was teaching there. And then um, after that, she came to Northwestern. And so I was there for that split. So I had two years with each of them. And Jim Ross had been teaching there. I studied with him the entire time. Um, But actually that summer in between, the summer after Burrett left and before she came, excuse me, I got into a car accident and I broke my left clavicle, my left collarbone. It was actually a pretty bad break. Um, Usually what doctors say is um, your collarbone, it it grows back. And most people who break their collarbone, like they'll, they'll have some sort of like calcified knot on their, on their collarbone. And like, it just grows back, but that didn't happen with me. I ended up getting surgery on it. Um, And I took a semester off Actually, Northwestern isn't on the quarter system, so I took a quarter off, and I took up a minor in business during that time. I got surgery, I did physical therapy, and it was a whole thing. Um, So yeah, my undergrad was like kind of dysfunctional, just because like different teachers, different teaching styles, and an injury, and um, yeah, I also just, I wasn't very focused during my undergrad. I, I I didn't have a clear vision of like what I wanted to do with music. I just knew that I liked playing and uh, wanted to get better. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because I know that <laughs> there's definitely a, a style and a, and a very much a full steam ahead approach, particularly with, with Michael Burry mm. that I would yeah. bet that I don't know. Like, did that feel like, I mean, you were doing a ton of stuff in high school. So it's almost like, it seems like it probably, you probably fit right in almost. Yeah, I loved studying with Burrett. He is um, so energetic and enthusiastic, and it, it was fun. Like, I mean, you can see when he performs, like he's having fun. Like he's he's really and and that type of energy really comes through with his percussion ensemble stuff too. I I really think of him as a great ensemble um, leader and coach. 
percussion ensemble was really lit there. Like it was just like on fire. It was really good. Compared to my high school, it didn't, going to Northwestern did not seem like a big jump in terms of like intensity. Um, just because I guess that was kind of, like I said, like the culture I, I grew up in a little bit is that people were really doing things full steam ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, and it is like, it is a high achieving university too. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're that time period where you're, you're rehabbing and you're having to kind of navigate an uns- a certain future and you had kind of already admitted to just like lack of focus too. Um, I mean, how long did it take before you physically felt like relatively close? I don't know. I mean, how long did that take? It took longer than I thought it would. Um, I, I ended up taking, I think it ended up being um, two, f- so three quarters of, or two thirds of the year, two quarters off. Um, and then I was like taking lessons again and practicing and, but I got surgery. So I spent a fair amount of time before I got surgery, just seeing, is this going to heal on its own? And then I got surgery and then it was like rehab from, from the surgery. So lots of physical therapy, um, and slowly working that up. There was a f- definitely one full quarter where I did not take any music classes at all. Um, and then the next quarterback, I was playing in uh, the chamber orchestra. I was just playing timpani on like Haydn type of stuff. I was like very chill. And then I was like starting to get in the swing of it. But I would say it took like a full year, honestly, to get to get over that that bad of an injury. Um, I got surgery that now I have a metal plate and five pins in my in my collarbone now. But I have full mobility and everything, so I, it's all good now. But yeah, the time it was pretty devastating, and I, I really had to think, do you know what do I want to do, and do I want to be serious about this? That was also my first year with Shee was, um, was when this happened, and like also like I was on painkillers, you know, like at the beginning of that, it was like I was kind of zoned out and like didn't. Um, I didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? It's like you had this really bad injury and I was 20 years old and it's like, do I, am I sure that I want to do this with the rest of my life? It really felt like I, I had to have a serious moment with that. Um, I did decide to pursue a minor in business and started taking like economics classes, which was just like way over my head. Like <laughs> I was like, I'm smart. I can do this. But like taking like macroeconomics at Northwestern was like, no, this is not, this is not (laughs) happening. (laughs) I did it. I somehow passed, but I really struggled with economics. That was hard. Um, but I took some of those classes during that time when I was injured. Um, and then had some more like, I mean, it it wasn't a lot to have a, a business minor at that time. It wasn't a lot of classes. So yeah, I mean, it didn't really help in terms of, of clearing up my focus or having more clarity around that. But um, you know, I think it, it, everything happens for a reason, you know, I think that might've actually been the beginning of my sort of body awareness or mind body awareness when I started doing physical therapy. And I really enjoyed that a lot. And I think all of us should be doing physical therapy or something like it, um, to counteract what we do to our bodies from performing and like being hunched over our instruments all the time. 
Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I was starting to think about that when you, with the injury and recovery, and I think you had said, you know, at the beginning that it was about a 20 when you realized that the, you know, like the nervousness, the like use of beta block, like all of those mental things that were starting to creep in, like, it's you're putting it together. (laughs) Yeah. And it it was after I, um, recovered from that injury that I started doing yoga. Um, and I didn't really think that that was connected, but now looking, you know, in hindsight, it's like, Oh, I can kind of connect the dots a little bit. Maybe that, that had something to do with my injury more than just, you know, my anxiety and, um, or just like a desire to, I don't know, get in shape or, or whatever. It was maybe connected to that a little bit too. Yeah. But, but I mean, you being, uh, you know, like self admittedly a high achiever and being in all these really high pressure, high achieving things, I would imagine that you having a period of being very unfocused would be a real struggle. Oh yeah. It was a struggle for sure. I mean, I'm glad that it happened because it's like now I don't, looking back again, I can kind of connect the dots looking back. I'm incorporating things that I learned from that business degree. Um, when I took it, I, I thought like maybe arts admin, maybe I could do something like that. Maybe I could perform, um, but have a job doing arts admin. Um, so yeah, I mean, ideally I would love to be operating on all cylinders and doing something amazing. Um, but I wasn't really clear on exactly what that was or what felt right to me. Um, and so, yeah, I I did feel a little bit lost during that time for sure. And that was hard. Yeah. Does the, the end result of that, of that, of, of your studies and undergrad, like, I mean, you, you continued on. Yeah. Worked out. It sounds like. Yeah. So something interesting happened, which was, I, I wanted to do orchestral, like I wanted to go into orchestral studies, but I just kind of didn't think I was good enough and like thought that I wasn't sure that it seemed like it was maybe beyond my reach. Um, and at Northwestern, I was certainly not like a star student. Um, there were some extremely hardworking, extremely talented, incredible musicians there. So I wasn't sure that that's the direction I wanted to go because it was like, am I, am I actually going to be able to do this? Am I good enough? I mean, that was something that, that really like kind of held me back. Um, but I took an audition. It was, I was almost finished with my undergrad for a small regional orchestra in Iowa. And I won uh, principal percussion in Dubuque, Iowa. That was, I want to say like nine show nine shows a year, something like that, like once a month from September to June. And that kind of became an anchor for me. I spent the next three years after graduating Northwestern, I spent the next three years freelancing in Chicago and going to Iowa once a month to play with, with Dubuque. I ended up teaching percussion ensemble at the Chicago Youth Symphony. And I played a lot of new music and like just like pickup orchestras. I mean, Chicago, there's a, there's a really big freelance scene. There's a lot of different stuff happening. So I was able to sort of piece together something resembling a freelance career. (laughs) Um, and there's a ton of like regional orchestras in that area, like in, um, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, 
um, places like that. Soon into that, doing that whole um, freeway philharmonic thing, I, I was like, I, I want to really go for it. And I want to go back to school. I did three years of, of freelancing and I was like, okay, I, I think I want to like take this seriously. So I decided to audition for grad schools and I got into a few places, but I decided to go to Temple and study with Mr. Abel. Um, I really liked the vibe of like going to his house, having tea, and I'm sure you've heard the stories about Mr. Abel. It's just, it, it really did feel like a family. Like you're learning from sweet old grandpa and it felt really like positive and motivating. Um, up until that point, I hadn't really experienced something like that. I felt a lot more of like the cutthroat energy from like, not, not really Northwestern, um, maybe a little bit, and, and from my high school. And so it felt really nice to just like have a sweet, warm, inviting environment. So I went to Temple, completely overhauled my playing. Um, it's so funny looking back. I remember feeling like I was so old. I was like, I'm going back to school at 25. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> and like, That's I can't believe this. I just remember being like so embarrassed about that. And I was a pretty weak snare drummer at that time, but I just approached it like, okay, I want to start over from the beginning. Like, I don't know anything. Um, just teach me like I'm, I'm a child. And Mr. Abel and also Chris Devinney, who I studied with while I was there, amazing mentors. Um, and I, I really developed a, a solid foundation there. Mr. Abel, I would say that's like probably his biggest strength is really um, knowing how to meet people where they're at and then helping them from there. So I practiced a lot. I was really driven during that time. And I got a lot of encouragement while I was there just um, from other people, from my teachers. Um, and I really feel like Temple was the place where I actually started my orchestral studies. That's where I was like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm taking this seriously. We're, we're doing it. Um, and while I was in school there, I started taking auditions, but I wasn't getting past the first round. So after Philly, after being at Temple for two years, I went to DePaul. And before I had gone to Philly, I, I made a pact with myself. I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm freelancing now, I'm gonna go to school, and I'm gonna give myself four years. And, and if after the end of this four years, two years of my master's and two years of post-grad, if I don't have any sense that I'm doing well or that something isn't, this isn't gonna work out for me, then I need to do something else because I can't, um, I can't subject myself to this for, for my whole life. So after Temple, I went to DePaul, and I am really happy I did. DePaul is really an interesting school. There are so many teachers there. Um, there's a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. And so that was kind of my goal. I wanted to experiment with like what other people had to say. I knew what Mr. Abel and what Chris Divini were gonna say after two years. I played for them and I could, I could anticipate the words that were gonna come out of their mouth because they had a really distinct style and um, a distinct perspective. There's so many teachers at DePaul. I studied with a lot of people. Um, the whole time I studied with Eric Milstein, who um, plays in the Lyric Opera. And, but we could study with up to two people at a time. So 
Uh, and that was also on the quarter system. So I spent a little bit of time with um, Mark Demolakis, with Ian Ding, um, with Cynthia, and with Dave Herbert. So I got a little bit of flavor from, from everybody. And while I was at DePaul, I started getting in uh, to summer festivals. I started um, advancing in auditions. And I was a finalist for a couple, I was a finalist for the Israel Philharmonic. Mm. I was a finalist for New World. Um, while I was at DePaul, I started subbing in Hawaii and I also started subbing in Kansas City. And I was just really on a hustle and a grind there, just working insane hours, really pushing, pushing the limit, tunnel vision, must win job. So yeah, and then after that, I was offered a, a one year here. You know, in those circumstances, you're when you're studying with Abel and Davini mm-hmm. in in Philly, did they have a different perspective on the prep process versus the, the those folks that you studied with in DePaul? Yeah, absolutely. Davini's method is what he calls the two-click method, where you start um, playing things, excerpts at half tempo or maybe three quarter tempo. And then you play it five times in a row and then you move the metronome up two clicks. As someone who was starting to learn those excerpts for the first time, I really liked that because I could play Porgy, but when I had to play it at 60 beats per minute, it was forcing me to pay attention to each note in a way that I had never before. And increasing the, the tempo two clicks at a time, um, it made it so it was like, first of all, there's something measurable for me to know I'm improving, I'm getting faster, you know? And it was rare that there would be one set of two clicks that like suddenly I was outside of my range of capability, you know? It was like, it was very incremental. Whereas um, at DePaul and, you know, I guess other, other people that I've heard their methods for, it's like, they like to start at tempo or, or closer to tempo. Um, instead of building things from slow and moving up, um, they're approaching it from a different angle, learning the notes first and then incorporating more um, music, musical expression um, as they, you know, move through the process. Wait, so would that second process, would that mean that they would, like, if you could only, like, if you were doing Porgy at tempo, you would do, if you could play like the first three notes, then that would be it. Like, and you'd stop so that you wouldn't make mistakes or like I, that part, I need a little bit more. Yeah. Like taking smaller chunks at tempo, Mm -hmm. um, taking smaller chunks at tempo or, um, I'm trying to think like what else people do. I think that's really the main, probably you nailed it. Like playing it at tempo, but playing less of it at one time. People are different. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, I think now, um, I learn things both ways. Sometimes I do learn things slow and I go through the whole thing. And then sometimes I'll learn it closer to tempo, but I'm just going to take one little chunk at a time. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you dig into particularly that first method. Cause that's, I, I mean, I, I haven't studied orchestrally, but like in that sense, but I know when, when I've 
the, the, that slow process I end up really enjoying because it's kind of what you said, you, like you, you think about each note and you start to real, like think about how the music, even if it's at a slow tempo, you could start making music out of mm. that slower tempo. And like, I really enjoy those moments where it's, it's way, it's not even remotely what it's going to be like in the real, but you just get these like, Oh, I like how that resolves. And even though it yes. might be, Totally. And I think there's just like such an, um, like an emotional component to it also where it's like, okay, I'm capable of doing this and that feels nice. And so that's going to keep me in the practice room a lot longer than banging my head against the wall. So that's definitely how I started out learning all the excerpts. And I, I think that that really helped me lay down a, a solid foundation. Yeah. And then I think it's interesting too. Uh, I've seen people who, yeah, will take like two or three notes at a time and really master this is how this is going to be. I guess the argument is that like, well, the way that it, it feels when you play it slow, it's going to feel completely different when you're playing it at tempo. So why ingrain something in your, into your muscle memory that's going to be different than the finished result? Why don't we just go directly towards what it's going to be like? Um, cause if you're, if you're playing something at like 140, um, it's your hands are just doing a different thing than your, what your hands are doing at 70, you know? Um, so I get that. Um, and I think also like, you know, pra practicing or coming up with, um, some exercises that mimic what the, uh, what the excerpt is doing is really helpful too. Um, so I guess those are all kind of different ways in which I, I've seen people and experienced people teach me how to do stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked studying with Divini because it's like, it's very clear cut and it's like, there's, there's no way to like, it's foolproof, you know? Um, so I, I really appreciated that. In this process where you're really starting to get into the orchestral lit, when do you start realizing that your first attempts at auditioning don't go super well, and but then you start making strides. Yeah. So while I was at Temple, I was I was taking I took some auditions. I had to make a tape. Um, I, I I don't know. I guess. What do you mean? Like, how, how did I start? Like seeing success or like? Yeah, I mean, like if you if obviously I, I would think that if if you get past round one, then you're like, okay. The most impactful thing that I did was recording myself like every single day, recording myself and doing mock auditions were like probably the two things that were the most helpful. Um, I don't know if you can hear that rooster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Recording myself really made it clear because this is something that I think is so interesting is that our perception of what we're doing in the moment can be so different than what reality is. Yeah. Like we can think that we are playing so fast when it's not or vice versa. I mean, I think maybe the opposite happens more. We, we think we're playing in tempo and we're actually playing like 20 beats per minute faster. Um, and like, so recording myself really helped me ground into reality a lot. Um, and recording myself every single day made it so that I, I understood what my tendencies were. And I got to know myself and my playing a lot better. Recording myself during performances too. 
I would sneak my, my phone or a little recording device into auditions and, and then I would listen back and it's like, okay, well that didn't work because of this. Actually, that's something that Divini did with me too, is I, I would record my audition. I, I didn't get past the first round and we listened to it together and he'd say, well, you know, that wasn't in time or, you know, that didn't sound very good or whatever. And so it was helpful to have someone kind of train me in understanding what the level had to be. You know, the level has to be so high. Um, and we can all look back and say, oh, I nailed it. <laughs> but unless you're really like listening and um, you don't know because our perception isn't, isn't truth. Yeah. And I think that as time goes on and as you become more acquainted with yourself and your own playing, your perception of it is closer to reality. Um, but it, it's still not, it's still not the same. We, you can't know if you are really truly in it, like you're not, um, as consciously present. I mean, the ideal is if we're in that flow state where we're just, um, it's like a super consciousness, we're hyper-focused. And I mean, how can you look back and know exactly what you did when you're in that state, you know? Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, and I, I like, um, hearing that I hadn't like thought about like sneaking in a recording device or like, you know, putting like voice memo or something like that while you're doing your audition. But that's like, that's great. Cause yeah, I nailed it. And you're like, I, I didn't. Uh. Totally. I mean, we've all been there. I totally nailed it. It was, I did exactly what I wanted to. And then you listen back and you're like, Oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Let and me so check the date. <laughs> yeah. I mean like recording is really like you, that's, I think that's really the secret sauce. Cause then you, you start to learn, okay, like this is what I actually did when I thought I was doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Becca, I finished up with a segment called random ask questions. Ooh. Okay. So, uh, first question is what's an issue either in percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? It kind of goes along with what I'm talking about at, at PASIC. Um, I think when I was getting nervous, first of all, I think we need to be addressing, um, stage fright performance anxiety, but along with that, I think we need to be addressing how to practice efficiently because the advice that I always got was practice more, practice more and you won't be nervous and you'll be confident. Um, and so I practiced more, but I wasn't actually practicing better. So I think we need to be just teaching our students how to practice efficiently. Um, so we're not just trying to clock in hours, but actually getting really good work done. It's kind of weird how I, I'm sure you've noticed this too, where like the difference between how you can, how much time you have to practice when you're a master student in particular versus when you have like a life and career. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think that's something that like a lot of professionals, like I don't practice the way I used to, like I don't have 10, 12 hours to practice, but I can get a lot I can get a lot more done in two hours than I used to, which is great. Yeah. I think we should be teaching our students that for sure, because I, yeah, I, I don't think that's emphasized enough and it does bother me because <laughs> I feel like I wasted a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot because our, my undergrad, my mentor for my grad degrees was Court McLaren, who's 
had taught at UNCG for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, he was not in the orchestral world. And he was very much like, you can get everything done in two to maybe two and a half hours. And then like, stop. Like you have a lot of other things you got to do with your life. Like, yes. And it was, and it was very much like efficient, like metronomic and then get on with your day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like most of the teachers I had were just like, you need to be practicing eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And if you're not doing that, then you're not serious about this. But I was just banging my head against a wall for eight hours. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't actually making progress. I think ultimately it ended up making progress, but I, I struggled to figure out how to actually be super efficient with my practicing. Yeah. Well, you have to, and I, and you know, I always think that that relates back to the mental health part too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, like it's all related. It's all related for sure. All right. Next question. Um, you know, what are the ways in your position that you've thought about issues of inclusion, diversity, and equity, as well as, well as someone who is uh, in a profession that is not typically, there aren't that many women who are doing what you're doing? Mm. How do you think about, or what do you think about when that comes to mind? I think that the orchestral world and the music world in general we need to be moving with the times. Something that I think about a lot here in Hawaii is amplifying the voices of the people that are here, Um, local composers, um, local issues. We need to be incorporating that into our shows. In addition to performing more works by people of color and works composed by women, I think also we need to be incorporating local issues into our performances. I think that the more that we can connect our local community to our shows, the more connected people are going to be to it. As far as like being a woman in this industry, I don't, it's not something that I think about or come across. I don't, I don't think that I've experienced any like specific struggles with that. However, I do think that having a platform like a symphony orchestra does, it's a, it's a really good opportunity to amplify and lift up voices that are not, that don't get a a stage a lot of the time. So I'm really happy to be a part of an organization that does prioritize that. Um, We do quite a lot of, of local works and, um, and playing music that represents the culture of the place where I live, um, which has a, a very unique culture. Um, I think the more that we can do that, the better. I do think that orchestra in particular can be very like homogenous and just rooted in tradition. And I think that the world is just moving away from that um, in general. And I think we should be including even like more electronics in our orchestral shows and and more new music and um, just kind of pushing the boundaries in every direction, not just with like, you know, really in, in all directions, we can be um, moving forward, having progress. All right. Some other questions, not, not on, not as serious. Uh, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Oh, well, I'm a girl, dude. There's so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's plenty. Uh, let me think of something in particular. I mean, I've got some like 
five inch heels that I can't wear very often. Um, my wedding dress. Um, I have a sequin number that doesn't get worn that often, but yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, What's he, I want to know what yours is. <laughs> oh, I have I um, I have a soccer, I have like a high school soccer Jersey that has my name on it because oh, we nice. do that. The, and it's, I haven't worn it in a long time, but it's like, a, it's like, it just sits in the closet and it's totally, it doesn't take up a lot of room and I, it might still fit, but I, I haven't put it on in, in, in a long time. Oh, you should, you should bring that out. It's almost Halloween. You can make that it's happen. True. It's true. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. I'm going to, I'll take that on. <laughs> Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, I don't, not that I'm aware of. I would love to see that. Um, I don't know. How? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Do you want to go? Do you want to give it a shot? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> what is your biggest kitchen mess up? I I burn shit sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, so okay, this is funny actually. So for a while living in Hawaii, I I lived in a in a place that was like the kitchen was outside, um, mm. on the lanai. So like the inside was like the room and the bathroom and then outside was kitchen and like a little patio area. So I cooked everything on a hot plate and, mm. um, I lived there for like two years. It was a beautiful place. Like it actually was really nice, but just, it was a there's no real kitchen. So I recently moved into a, a, a real house with a functioning kitchen and a stove. I have a stove top. And when I first started cooking here, I burned everything because I was like completely miscalculated. I was like so used to cooking everything on a, on a hot plate that I was like, oh, I don't know how stoves work, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think just burning things is like the main, <laughs> burning things on the stove top. Is definitely the main culprit of my <laughs> mistakes. Did I you, like to cook though. I do, I cook a lot. I hope you figured it out. Yeah, I've I've mostly figured it out. Sometimes I still get caught off guard a little bit. <laughs> it's like, ooh, that's hot. <laughs> do do you have have you do you have a specialty? Uh specialty thing you cook now? No, not not really. I like to experiment and just try new recipes. But yeah, nothing like I'm not like gourmet. By any means. Yeah. Is there anything that's specific to Hawaii that you really have taken to food-wise? Well, one thing I'll say is that um, I buy most of my groceries at the farmer's market and uh, like local markets now. That's a big shift that I've, I've made since moving here. I buy my meat from like a butcher who goes to the farmer's market, which is really cool. Um, all my fruits and vegetables from there. There's like a bread guy. So like I, I, I don't really go to a regular grocery store anymore, which is cool. Um, I really like, I think that's probably the most Hawaiian thing is like um, things are fresh. And one of my previous places, we had a lot of fruit trees. So we had a mango tree, we had an avocado tree, we had a lychee tree. So there was lots of uh, fruits producing all the time. What is that? The lychee. It's a, um, it's a little fruit. They, they're like this big. 
Mm-hmm. And the outside is red and spiky. And okay. then you peel off and the inside is sort of like a white, almost like a gummy texture. Okay. Um, it's a really mild flavor, um, but it's sweet. Sweet, but um, I'm trying to think of another fruit that has something like that. But um, yeah, so much uh, like amazing fruit here. Dragon fruit, star fruit, pineapple, lots of pineapple and mango. One thing I've learned, a lot of uh, a lot of the names for the fruits, we use the Hawaiian names. And so at first I was like, I don't know what, what's haupia and haupia is coconut. So, um, you know, when you like go to a, uh, like a smoothie place or a restaurant, you'll see things in Hawaiian and that, that took a while for me to figure out. <laughs> gotcha. So relatedly when you, the times that you travel back to, if you travel back to Chicago, the Chicago area, what's something that you, you know, before you even see people, you're like, I have to get this food. I have to get this now. And then I'm ready to talk. What's that for you? Uh, Mexican food and Mediterranean food. Oh. Not a lot of that here. There, okay, I have to tell you this. There's <laughs> one place in Hawaii that there's there's um, Mediterranean food, and it's called Shaloha, like Shalom and Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the one place. It's like it's pretty good, yeah. but um, where I grew up, there's this place called Pita Inn which is insanely good. So I always go to Pita Inn. And honestly, we don't have Chipotle here. Mm. Um, so Chipotle, or just like Mexican food in general. Chicago has incredible Mexican food. When I lived in the city, um, there was this like hole in the wall place I used to go to all the time that I, I try to make it back to if I'm in the city. Most of the time when I'm going home, I'm, I'm going back to the suburbs where my family is. Um, but there's still good Mexican food there. For some reason, like Mexican food doesn't really happen here. There's not, there's not great Mexican food. So the last time I was on the mainland, I had like a ridiculous amount of Chipotle, um, like obscene. (laughs) There's a couple things. I have to go to Trader Joe's. There's no Trader Joe's here, which is also ironic because their uniform is a Hawaiian shirt. Right. I forgot to replace that. Yeah don't have it in Hawaii. So they're liars. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I actually order that like everything, but the bagel seasoning, yeah. um, that they have. And I order it online mm-hmm. and have it sent here. Cause that stuff's really good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. That's like my wife's biggest thing. It's like if if Columbia, I'm in mid Missouri in Columbia, and it's like if we could just get a Trader Joe's, that would make my wife would just be like over the moon. Oh my god, it's the but, best! It's so and, like inexpensive but really good. Yeah, yeah. We have to go to St. when we go to St. Louis though, and there's a there's like a whole group of people who when they get like if they arrive at St. Louis Airport, it's like they have bags ready to go to one of the three. Trader Joe's on the way back. (laughs) Yes. I love that. Yeah. It's so funny. It's, it's, what's hilarious is like, so in Hawaii, there's no Krispy Kreme, you know, Uh Krispy Kreme donuts. There's not one here on Oahu, but there's one in Maui and literally people will fly, like to get to another Island, you can go over for like 30 or $40 to like Island hop. People will sell Krispy Kremes here on Oahu that they brought over from Maui for like 
really expensive. It'll be like $5 a donut or something like that. But yeah. like you'll see if you go to Maui and you come back to Oahu, you will see people with like boxes of Krispy Kremes, like so <laughs> random. It's a thing, uh, I guess. <laughs> Supply and demand. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> All right. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? You know what? I just watched again was Goodwill Hunting yeah. and really good. I just watched that like two nights ago. Um, that was a really good movie, a really terrible movie. I've been on a big movie kick recently, but I've been watching good ones. Yeah. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Do you have a favorite bad movie? What did I come up with? I, I used to say, um, the love guru along to, do you remember this? Mm, this was I the, remember like, that. Yeah. It was like the last movie he made and then he just like stopped after that. Cause it was, it just didn't work. Yeah. Like, it's so sad. Cause you're like, I love the Austin power stuff and I, I all of his things I, I really enjoyed. And then it was like, this just. Oh my gosh. I actually watched the Austin powers movie, not like super recently, but yeah, in yeah. COVID days. And I remember watching the third one and we were just like, no, like, yeah. I don't know. The, I think the second one was okay. The third one was like, no, yeah. we, we couldn't even like watch. We couldn't even do it. The first two are the first two are very good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of that stuff just does, it doesn't age well. That no. humor like just didn't age super well. Yeah, it yeah. happens. What was what was I'm curious. What were some of the other? What have been some of the other good movies you've been watching? I just watched Fight Club. Oh yeah. Um, Seven. I just watched. Oh, which was really love that. Good. Yeah. Um, Memento. Yeah. Right now, so my husband's in the military and he's away. He's on mission right now, mm. and our way of connecting is we give, we have a long list of movies that we're both going to watch during this time where we're going to be separated. So, um, so yeah, we've been watching a lot of movies and then I just started watching this show. I'm like 11 years behind, but it's called shameless. Um, (laughs) it's so, I'm so sucked into it. I'm only on the first season and there's a there's literally 11 seasons and I'm so happy because I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad I found a show that I like. And like, there's plenty of it that I'm going to, I can get sucked into it. It's a great show. Um, have you seen it? I I haven't, but I, I, it's one I've thought like, maybe, maybe I'll try. It's good. It's good. Well, I like it, but it takes place in the South side of Chicago too. So I didn't grow up on the South side and like, you know, they're, they're growing up like in poverty and that's not, that was not my reality, but it does bring back a little bit of like Chicago, I don't know, pride. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't know if everyone's into it, but it's, I think it's really well done. Yeah. No, that's, (laughs) that's, that's awesome. What about, what's a favorite book? Okay. So in terms of like, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot. I read a lot. Um, but in terms of like the um, wellness scope, my absolute all-time favorite is this book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. And it has to do with like how our, um, basically how our minds and our bodies are really related and how when we experience things, they they house themselves in our bodies. So any type of experience that we have, if we, if it's positive or negative, if we don't release that, if we don't cry or if we don't laugh, it ends up kind of storing itself somewhere in our body. And it's really fascinating. Um, Other than that, like a fiction book, 
I really like, um, I reread this recently, The Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. It turned into a movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, haven't really re- I read it like when it came out and then I, I haven't read it since then, but. Yeah. And then a book that I, I, I've, Is I it read still good? all the time. Oh, it's still good. Okay. okay. I, I didn't see the movie, but, um, it's fine, but the book is good. Um, yeah. and then there's a book that I'm kind of like always coming back to, which was a childhood favorite called the phantom toll booth. Oh yeah. Yes. I literally. I'm, oh, I'm never like not reading this book because it's so like creative and clever. And I feel like it helps me like it helps me like remember myself as a kid, you know? Um, and just kind of gets those like creative juices flowing a little bit. It's really cute. And yeah, I read it every night, like while I'm trying to go to sleep. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's great. It's very cute and clever. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's, that's, (laughs) Um, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Well, since now I've become really interested in sound healing, I would love to go to Southeast Asia, Bali, um, Nepal. That's an area of the world I would, I would love to check out. I also really want to go to Croatia is like a place on my bucket list. Um, I don't know. I love to travel. Um, I want to go to back to Japan, love to go to Korea. I don't know. I want to go everywhere. Um, but yeah, Southeast Asia is definitely on the list. Like Thailand, Cambodia, Nepal, um, would be really cool. I think that'll probably happen sooner, sooner rather than later. That's good. If I can experience this, like as it's intended, like as it's historically and traditionally, intended through the the cultures that created it. I would love that. Um, like Balinese. Um, I mean, they have like, just like gong orchestras, it seems like, you know, I would love to see that. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully that'll happen. I'm planning to within the next couple of years, but I haven't like actually, you know, gotten the, the plans figured out, but that's someplace I definitely want to check out. That's great. I I've heard, I've not gotten the go, but I've heard through and from other people who've traveled, like I'll see pictures of Croatia and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Stunning. stunning. And I think it's just like one of those secret places that like, it's just so beautiful. And it, and, and because it's not like France or Germany or whatever, people are just or like, like Italy, popular. which is yeah. where, you know, like other places on the Mediterranean there. Totally. Or Greece. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I've ne- I've been to Greece, but I've never been to Italy, and I'm half Italian, so I would love to I would love to go to Italy. Um, I've never been. I would love to make that happen. Um, but honestly, I don't think there's anything better than traveling and seeing the world and and experiencing different cultures. Um, I think that's it's it's one of the best things that you can do for yourself as a human being. It's it's both very like mind expanding, um, where we can see how other people live, but then I think it's also very like uh, grounding and centering because we kind of just realize that everyone's like us, you know. I mean, we all have our different customs, but like they're centered around the same things. I mean, people just tend to value the same things no matter where you are in the world. It's just how they express it that that changes, and that's really cool to see. I was going to ask. I was like, is your last name Italian? And yeah, 
half Italian, half German. Okay. I'm yeah. so, and my, my other half is uh, Slovak. Mm. So, um, so that's, it's funny. Um, and do you know where Italy, your roots are? I don't, I don't, I should, but I don't. My dad's first generation. I want to say Southern Italy, but I don't actually know. Okay. Um, my parents like escaped their, like, they were like, we want to close the door on our history. So my grandparents, like, I'm not, uh, I don't know a lot. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Both my parents are first generation. So they grew up speaking other languages mm. and, but not, not in our house. They were like, we're starting fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually grew up like never seeing my grandparents. Like we didn't, um, we didn't communicate with them at all. So kind of intense. I also, interestingly enough, don't have cousins. I have a tiny family. Mm. Um, my, my mom had one sister who never, who never married. And then my dad was an only child. So no, no cousins kind of random, especially for an Italian family. I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the opposite. Really <laughs> huge family. Yeah. Large family. So. Nice. I'm jealous. I kind of like wish I had that, but yeah, my, my immediate family, my, my brothers and I have two older brothers were tight. Yeah. 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 That that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You got to stick with what you have, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, growing, growing up in Chicago, do you have a sports fandom? Um, I guess, yeah. I mean, the Cubs were kind of our, team i'm i i can't really pretend to be like interested in sports sorry <laughs> no, like like th- th- there's like a lot of cubs like i don't know i don't really care i'm definitely like i will go to a baseball game and drink beer and have a hot dog and yell and have fun but like i don't care yeah i will enjoy that too like it's fun sure. doing that i'll probably do that like uh, when i lived in chicago i did that at least once a summer but i don't care like yeah. it's, <laughs> I'm there for the experience. I don't, I don't really have any like emotional, um, yeah. Ties to anything. <laughs> yeah. All right. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. Oh my God. One immediately comes to mind. So in my freelance days in Chicago, I played a lot of new music and, um, it just interesting stuff. And so I played one show where the idea was that every piece was at a different location. And so it was kind of taking the audience on like a pub crawl sort of, but they'd go to different like historic buildings in Chicago. And, um, I don't remember what the building was. It was stunning. It was beautiful. But each of us, we were supposed to represent like, um, the revolutionary war. And so I had like a drum slinged over me and I had to dress in all yellow. Um, I was representing the native American in that. And then someone had to dress in all white. Someone had to dress in all red. And I, I just remember like having to find yellow pants somewhere. I was like, I don't know what to do about this but I I did find some um but I was wearing yellow head to toe and then playing a drum like slung around my shoulder um and it was also like really bizarre music like 
really out there. We're standing in a room, like walking in a circle with like somber faces. And like, it was like a funeral march type of thing. And it was like, just bizarre. It's art, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining the pub crawl part. part of, uh... Yeah, and that was... I, I do think that's a cool idea. Um, but also, you're probably just going to lose people along the way. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were people who saw, who saw my little bit, though. We were definitely not the first people there, but the first sight to see, but, but there were people there. Yeah. Yeah, but yellow pants. I mean, <laughs> I, that was difficult. That was difficult to figure out. (laughs) Let's say those did not make the trip to Hawaii. No. And then like, it's like, you know, it's a fine line. It's like, I'm a native American or am I a banana? Like, (laughs) I don't look like, I don't know if this is portraying what you wanted to portray, but um, it was cool. I mean, we ended up all looking like pretty, pretty cool with our monochrome outfits. It was a cool idea, but um, yeah. Those those pants ended up in the goodwill pile for sure. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> that was All right, last thing, Becca. What uh, one, one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything, has impacted you the most recently? I am really constantly taking in art forms. Um, I read a lot and I think literature is, I draw a lot of inspiration from that, but I think honestly, the the thing that's coming to mind is um, I started to (laughs) um, watch like cartoons sometimes Mm -hmm. um, and like old, old timey cartoons like Tom and Jerry and like the Roadrunner, um, like old Looney Tunes. And honestly, I, this is going to sound so bizarre, but what I, I am kind of drawing some inspiration from this because they're so exaggerated and the energy behind it is so big. There's no, there's not a lot of subtlety. Um, and I kind of like seeing, um, the bigness of it. I don't know how to explain it, but that like a joke is um, delivered and like played out is like kind of inspiring to me. It's like, they really set us up to make this joke or to laugh at this joke. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm inspired by Tom and Jerry right now. (laughs) It sounds ridiculous, but, but yeah, it is, it's kind of goofy to see how they like rewrite this same story over and over again and change it and mix it up and make it unique and different in like wild ways. Like you, you can't imagine still being interested in watching a cat chase a mouse, but like somehow they make it so like exaggerated and fun that it is enjoyable. And it's like, wow. Okay. You're making this like very simple concept actually pretty unique and different every time. So I think that's pretty cool. Anyone who mentions Tom and Jerry, like the old Tom and Jerry, I'm like, that is so my, that was my favorite. Yeah. So good. I think also like, I guess right now I'm in this like child phase where I I'm really liking, uh, reading old books that I used to read or watching things that I used to watch. Um, because it kind of connects me back to 
who I was before, you know, before school, before work, before I had all these obligations. And I think it's important to connect ourselves back to who we used to be, you know? Um, I think that we all have like a lot of input from society, from family expectations. And it's like, what did I actually like before I was influenced by all of those things? Um, yeah, I recently bought a pair of roller skates mm. and I've been like <laughs> going to the beach and like roller skating. And it's like, how often do you actually just have fun that's just fun and not like for some other purpose? And I think it's important that we do that, incorporate more of that into our lives. So much fun getting the chance to talk to Becca. I wish her all the success in the future for her in both the percussion and holistic healing worlds and look forward to keeping up with her in the future. This week's rave is the 2022 film Till, starring Danielle Deadweiler, Jalen Hall, Whoopi Goldberg, and Sean Patrick Thomas, and co-written and directed by Chinoye Chukwu, now available for rent. Till is a biographical feature film about a seminal moment in the history of the United States and of civil rights in this country, the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 in Mississippi, and the aftermath from that tragedy. The movie had been in the works, so to speak, for at least 20 years and was finally made into a feature film late last year. The movie starts a couple of months before the death of the Chicago-born and raised Emmett Till, played by Jalen Hall, who gets to go ahead to spend part of the summer with family in Mississippi in 1955, at a time when life was very different between those two areas of the country. The story goes that Emmett whistled in some way to a white woman, who complained to those she knew, and Emmett was later forcibly removed at gunpoint from his house by locals connected to the white woman, brutalized, beaten, and killed. After his death, the film focuses on the work that his mother Mamie, played by Daniel Deadweiler, along with support from her grandmother, played by Whoopi Goldberg, who also produced the film, and her significant other, played by Sean Patrick Thomas, to both keep him and his memory alive through a long haul of activism, a short court case, and many other items over the years. The decision that is most memorable and well-documented about that time is that Mamie Till, Emmett's mother, made a conscious decision that her son, who was essentially beaten beyond recognizability, would be displayed with minimal treatment and presented with an open casket at his funeral so that those who came to pay their respects and the cameras of the time would be able to see up close and photograph the shocking way that her son was brutalized and killed. And that was published nationally and internationally, which helped it to spur on further eventual civil rights legislation while showcasing a mother's unendurable grief. Those facts aside, including excellent writing and acting from all those involved, the kudos for this particular movie go towards Chinue Chukwu's inspired direction and an incredibly moving acting performance by Danielle Deadweiler as Mamie Till. The movie makes very clear that the focus of this movie and its viewpoint is Mamie Till, and Deadweiler steps up in ways that few actors get a chance to. 
When scenes are occurring that involve other actors, particularly if those folks are white, Chukwu's camera stays focused on Deadweiler and her reaction. When Mamie receives the news of her son's death after a long search when he goes missing, the camera stays on Deadweiler for a long, unbroken shot where she displays a slow burn of grief that is truly heartbreaking and a demonstration of masterful acting skill. I can honestly say that I have no freaking clue how Deadweiler did not get nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress for this performance. A truly massive snub. It's masterful work from the start and one of the great acting performances of the past 20 years at least. But put it all together and you get a wonderful, challenging movie to watch with all those folks involved. Make sure to catch Till, now available for rent. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.